This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, which is undergoing an extensive renovation to create more exhibition galleries, community and event space, a cafe, and more. See all the changes coming at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode five of season five of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm Rachel DePompa. I cannot believe we're on season five and we've just hit an insane mark. I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We've surpassed 100,000 downloads, an unbelievable feat to our listeners and our guests. Kate, Colton and I just wanted to say thank you. We are turning back the clock on the week of August 2nd through the 8th. The closet that I was in exploded and I flew out the closet into the outside and went down about two stories and fell into a a brick roof. August 6th, 1993. I heard this wind blowing. And all of a sudden, I just saw the walls coming towards yeah. me. What you do? Just fall on the floor? No, the walls knocked me down on the floor. And then I, I was pinned under the roof. A day few in central Virginia will ever forget. The Tri-Cities tornado. It looked like bombs had just gone off in every car. The strongest tornado in the Commonwealth since 1950. The windows were just all over the place and the side of the buildings fell. It's just, I never think that something like this would happen in Petersburg. Touchdown happened on a Friday at 1.30 in the afternoon. The tornado ballooned in size and strength as it approached historic Old Town Petersburg. At this point, the twister was 300 yards wide, and most of the storm was an EF2, winds well over 100 miles per hour. The National Weather Service now calls it an EF4 multi-vortex tornado. And that's about as crazy as it sounds. That's when a large twister has several smaller tornadoes inside of it that rotate around a central core To be honest, I've never heard of this before. It sounds apocalyptic, something you'd only see in a doomsday movie. Within that 300-yard path of destruction, there were small portions around 30 yards wide where damaging winds doubled to EF4 strength. That's 210 miles per hour a wrath that's nearly unfathomable unless you lived to tell the tale. It was amazing. I mean, it was just like something in a dream. Denise Lenowitz felt it firsthand. She was in the upper floor of her Petersburg apartment building when she was thrown two stories down. 
I saw a light and smoke and all the stuff coming towards me. So I went, I ran to the closet and put my head over, my hands over my head like they say to do. And then right when I did that, the closet that I was in exploded. And I flew out the closet and to the outside and went down about two stories and fell into a, a brick roof. City Councilman Charlie Cuthbert was in his Petersburg law office that day. I looked out of the window facing west and I saw this tree that normally stands tall and strong and it was bent at about a 45 degree angle. I'd never seen anything like that. And I thought it was just, you know, a big windstorm. Didn't think anything more of it. Had no idea that it would make an impact on Petersburg like it did. And it was a constant stream of ambulances going down to Old Street. At that point, I realized that this was more than just a windstorm. The reports from the National Weather Service from Old Town are downright terrifying. 58 buildings were badly damaged or destroyed. One of them had a solid brick wall that was four bricks thick. There was a two to three foot diameter hole punched through it, likely caused by an airborne missile launched by the tornado, perhaps a beam from another building's roof. Petersburg's train station, the oldest standing station in Virginia at the time, demolished. A caboose anchored to a short piece of train track there was ripped from the ground thrown 20 feet in the opposite direction of the tornado's path. Amazingly, nobody in Petersburg was killed. All of that destruction in minutes. The twister moved on to the historic black neighborhood of Pocahontas Island around 1.35 p.m. I caught up with the honorary mayor of Pocahontas Island, Richard Stewart, on the 25th anniversary of the tornado tearing through. Where we stand at right now was the path of the Underground Railroad, came right straight through here. Of the 57 homes on the island that's nestled along the Appomattox River, 47 were either heavily damaged or destroyed. Every building had some type of damage, and the pathway through it, it destroyed all the houses. The National Weather Service says the tornado was an EF3 at this point, winds of at least 130 miles per hour, and it had decreased in size from 300 yards wide to 250. If I would have had to, to define our, who we were over here, we just prayed it was a reign of terror. Nobody was killed on Pocahontas Island. But for Stewart, those prayers were answered in a way you wouldn't expect. I'm not a preacher, but God saved Pocahontas. Most people don't say a tornado hitting is a gift from God. Why do you say that? Pocahontas has become a slum, blight property. There was bootlegging, racketeering, and some of everything going over here. It seemed like once that tornado came here, it was a cleansing process. Money to rebuild poured in. People from all over showed up to help, 
And for once, this forgotten beacon for former slaves, inhabited now by their descendants, was getting remembered. We still say it's a blessing from God, and we still look at this as being our promised land. This is a beautiful place that is not only black history, it's white history, it's America history. The damage to Petersburg and Pocahontas Island was estimated at $15 million. Over 100 buildings damaged or gone, 40 people hurt, nobody killed. That would change as the storm continued into Colonial Heights. The twister crossed the Appomattox River, several storefronts full of people in its path, including a Kmart and Walmart. Witnesses say the storm was still 200 yards across, as wide as the Walmart was long. Winds well over 100 miles per hour still, with a vortex within spinning at 175 miles per hour. Hundreds of people inside the store had just 20 seconds of warning before the tornado hit. Michelle Ekman was one of them. The whole roof was like a wave. It was like a wave? Yeah, you what do you mean by that? It, you could see the roof just waving from the inside and the lights were shaking. Next thing you know, we're trying to hide. They were told to head to the middle of the building and hid when the power went out. You were just crouched down hoping that you, you know, you just didn't know what was happening. You didn't know what was going on. Hundreds of cars in the parking lot tossed around like toys, many totaled after being flipped. It looked like bombs had just gone off in every car, carts everywhere. You could see cars on top of cars on the Kmart. They were on top of each other, on top of the Kmart. It was, it was like this whole little area just, it is like it, that was the center of the storm. Some 200 people were injured. The fear of fatalities rose as the night went on. They're trying now, they're trying to get a lady out of there. She's stuck in a board's holding her legs down. Crews working to remove as much rubble as possible from the store that had an enormous gash ripped right through it. Everything was just in the rumbles, you know, and uh, people was everywhere, you know, looking and trying to find out where their friends and loved ones were. Janice Gunn drove to the store to look for her sister-in-law, Carolyn, who worked there. Well, after we didn't get any information, we just kind of assumed that, you know, something serious had happened. People kept saying, you know, different things. We called all the hospitals. It wasn't until the next day when they got the call they feared. 48-year-old Carolyn Gunn was dead. She was working at the checkout line, unable to get to safety. Her brother John described what he was told. I guess the tornado hit so quick that uh, people just didn't have an opportunity to do much moving, you know, and one of the beams came down and, and fell on her, and, and that's what killed her. But it's hard to, to lose a sister or a loved one. Another cashier in the store, 40-year-old Cheryl Weisheim, was also killed. 56-year-old May Procisus, out shopping that Friday afternoon, fatally injured as well. 
nearly 200 others hurt in just minutes. But the twister wasn't done yet. Still an intense EF2 tornado, winds north of 110 miles per hour. It continued into Prince George County around 1.40 p.m. About a mile away from the Walmart, an employee of a sand and gravel pit company spotted the incoming disaster and radioed to the others to take cover, likely saving lives. Three workers ran out of the small building just moments before it was blown away. Others took cover in the company's main building, a two-story cinder block structure. It was there that the storm would claim its final victim. 28-year-old Morris Gupton Jr., crushed by cinder blocks and an electrical panel when the second floor of the building collapsed. In all, four people killed, 259 others hurt. The devastating twister injured as many people as all tornadoes combined in the prior 40 years. August 6, 1993. The Tri-Cities Tornado, a permanent scar on the minds and hearts of those living south of Richmond. It caused nearly $50 million of damage, bringing death and destruction along the 12 miles it traveled. Virginia is no stranger to natural disasters, hurricanes, tropical storms, usually battering the Commonwealth over the course of several hours. In this case, one of the most devastating weather events in Central Virginia was over in less than 20 minutes. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Following the Revolutionary War, the fledgling United States was on a path that had not yet been paved. We told you earlier this season about the room where it happened. In June 1790, Hamilton was figuring out government debt, while Jefferson and Madison got the capital moved to the banks of the Potomac. As this new form of government was still being worked out, the country's image around the world was important for things like trade, even allies for future military engagements. These United States needed an international public relations campaign, and it came from the U.S. Constitution. It mandated that representatives and taxes would be apportioned to the states based on the number of people living there. This was the birth of the U.S. Census, and it began on August 2nd, 1790. This was a test to show the world that the country that just beat the Brits was made up of more than just a band of rebels in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. 
And it's the U.S. Marshals that were charged with carrying it out. They hired assistants to go from home to home, counting everyone inside. They would only include the name of the head of household. Everyone else in the house was just a number. Broken up into five different categories based on age, sex, and race. Native Americans who were not taxed were not counted. And enslaved people only counted as three-fifths of a person. The marshals and their assistants had nine months to complete the job, or else face a fine. Only the state of South Carolina asked for and received an extension. George Washington told Congress that one of the assistants there made a, quote, sudden elopement to St. Augustine with his paperwork, leaving the marshal there up a creek, so to speak. Once the census was complete, a bigger picture of the country began to take shape. The U.S. was made up of nearly four million people. Nearly 700,000 of them were slaves. The largest cities as far as population were as follows. New York City with 33,000, Philadelphia at 28,000, Boston boasted 18,000 people, Charleston 16,000, and Baltimore 13,000. You may be wondering where Virginia cities fell on that list. The answer, we don't know. The 1790 and 1800 census records for the Old Dominion have never been found. There are two theories floating around as to why. One perhaps more plausible than the other. But you know what that means. Another how we got here rabbit hole. The first option is what most believe happened to the documents. They were torched when the British burned the city of Washington during the War of 1812. But the second option is just as intriguing and might have you putting on your detective hats. Some theorize that those early Virginia documents are simply laying around, unidentified, for more than two centuries. Here's why. After the 1790 census was complete, assistant marshals in each locality were supposed to make two copies of the original document and post them in public places to allow people to inspect them and, in some cases, correct them. The originals were supposed to be sent to and kept with the clerks in each state's federal court. The copies were meant to be kept with the state marshal or county officials. The Redcoats roasted Washington in 1814, but at that point, the census records were not legally mandated to be kept in the nation's capital. The clerks in each state were supposed to have them. It wasn't until 1830 that a law was passed saying the original census documents 
needed to be sent to the Library of Congress long after the city burned. A 1909 government document seems to imply that only summaries of the first census were burned by the Brits when they invaded, going on to say that the originals were supposed to be with the clerks of each state's federal court at that point. So it could be possible that Virginia's original document and several copies survive to this day. Though we can only speculate on how likely that really is. August 2nd, 1790. The constitutionally mandated PR campaign to prove prosperity and progress here at home, the census, officially begins. But the full picture of Virginia citizens in those early days remains a mystery. If any genealogists out there know about ancestors involved in the federal court in early Virginia, make sure to check any old trunks or containers for a hidden compartment. It could contain an incredible find, a long sought after, believed to be forgotten piece of history. Now, we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that that nation might live. The immortal words of President Abraham Lincoln, a monumental moment in history, the Gettysburg Address. In the wake of this Union victory, rebel leaders had their own moment, privately. August 8, 1863, Confederate General Robert E. Lee penned a letter to President Jefferson Davis offering to resign it's almost exactly a month, a month and four days after Lee starts the retreat of the army. That's Andy Talkoff, Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and an avid listener of How We Got Here. We love having Andy on the podcast. If you haven't listened to his retelling of the John Wilkes Booth manhunt in season three, you are missing out. Gettysburg was a crushing defeat for Robert E. Lee. There's probably no event during the war that looms quite as large in historical memory as Gettysburg. I mean, it's the largest battle fought during the war in any theater. More than 165,000 men were on that battlefield. Lee's army numbered more than 71,000. 
the viciousness of that battle is in many cases well told, particularly because of its violence. In some cases, the close quarter nature of the combat. And then, of course, in the years after the Civil War, former Confederates try to understand what happened and they look at Gettysburg as the great turning point. It's interesting because most historians today who study the Civil War would argue that Gettysburg was not the turning point. That Gettysburg looms large in our memory but may not have as much importance in the outcome of the war as did the fall of Vicksburg that happened on July 4th, 1863. So it was a, a week of calamities for the Confederate armies and Confederate nation. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, Lee was understandably occupied. Trying to get his army away from the Army of the Potomac, who may have been slow to follow, but did follow up on the victory and were chasing Lee's army into Virginia. Though Gettysburg was colossal in numbers, news of what happened in the three-day battle was slow to get out. I think that in the aftermath of Gettysburg, you know, reading the Southern newspapers, there is, as you would expect, especially in the mid-1800s, there's a lot of information, some of it misinformation, is getting back home to people. Initially, the people who were reading newspapers and interested in the activities of the armies were first being told that Lee had won a great victory. But steadily, the narrative in the Southern papers started to change as people understood the gravity of what took place. It's very clear that Lee's army was in retreat. Lee, who didn't often give a lot of credence to what newspapers were saying as far as their critique of the war. I think Lee was particularly sensitive about the fact that he had suffered a major defeat. Some newspapers were very critical of Lee. We even see the beginning of the spin that happens after the battle, you know, trying to explain what went wrong. But I think what really had a major impact on public opinion was the fact that the casualty numbers were starting to come back. The Union casualties numbered 23,000. The Confederates, some 28,000 men. Remember, the South's army was smaller to begin with. And it was very clear that we lost nearly 40% of his army, killed, wounded, or missing in three days of fighting. More than a third of his army gone, and the criticism piling up. In that letter to Jefferson Davis, Lee appeared more sensitive to how his men perceived him. In his resignation letter, he is very concerned about the way the army sees him. Not so much the public, although that probably weighed on him, but it was the army. Did he have the faith 
of the soldiers that he was leading. When he sat down to write it, just over a month after Gettysburg, General Lee was in a camp in Orange County, Virginia. There's a calm in the military activity, and he makes it clear he knows what the newspapers are saying. So in his letter, he says, I've seen and heard of expression of discontent in the public journals at the result of the expedition, meaning the Gettysburg campaign. And he said, I don't know how far this feeling extends in the army. My brother officers have been too kind to report it. And so far, the troops have been too generous to exhibit it. He said, it is fair, however, to suppose that it does exist and success is so necessary to us that nothing should be risked to secure it. By 1863, Lee was already revered, almost like a god to both his soldiers and Southern society. Because he won. If you look across the panorama of Confederate military activity, it's pretty bleak except beginning in June of 1862, when Lee comes to command what becomes known as the Army of Northern Virginia, just outside of Richmond, Lee brings victories. And I think for the men in Lee's army, this endeared Lee to them. Lee was also by Gettysburg very much in looking at newspapers, just very much revered among the white Southern population that supported the Confederacy. So even the language that we associate with the lost cause and the reverential treatment of Lee after the war, it's already beginning. He's already a hero of the Confederacy during the event which is frequently reflected in the reporting of the Battle of Gettysburg. In his resignation letter, Lee wasn't just worried about perception. He was 56 years old at the time. His age and his health weighed heavily in his words. He says, in addition, I sensibly feel the growing failure of my bodily strength. I have not yet recovered from the attack I experienced the past spring. I'm becoming more and more incapable of exertion and am thus prevented from making the personal examinations and giving the personal supervision to the operations in the field I feel to be necessary. And Andy Talkoff says the historical record shows Lee definitely had a health crisis in March of 1863, that's a few months prior to the Gettysburg defeat. There's been quite a bit of research and writing about Lee's health during this period. In early March of 1863, he wrote to his wife, Mary, that he was feeling worn out and that several weeks later, it had become what was referred to, he referred to as a violent cold. So on March 27th, he writes, the troops are not encamped near me and I have felt so unwell since my return from Petersburg as not to be able to go anywhere. I've been suffering from a very heavy cold, which I hope is passing away. Some medical historians believe his symptoms were mistaken for a cold, 
but in fact, he may have had pericarditis, an inflammation of the membrane around his heart, which had a sudden onset and came with pain in the chest, back, and arms. It affected his ability to ride a horse, and he was known to be anxious and depressed in the days and years after, both common conditions after heart attacks. More modern medical professionals have sort of tried to posit what he might have. And in a 1992 article, they suggest what he had is ischemic heart disease, which is reduced blood flow to the heart, which is caused by narrowed heart arteries. But I think the consensus is that we definitely had a cardiac episode in March of 1863. Which is why so many people zero in on his decisions on the battlefield at Gettysburg a few months later. I mean, one of the great questions about the Battle of Gettysburg is what was Lee thinking? Because in retrospect, certainly the assault on the third day, known as Pickett's Charge, was just such a bad idea. Of course, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback, especially military events, but really any event. But think about this. Before that Pennsylvania disaster, but after his health episode, Lee is still finding ways to win and expertly maneuver his army. He goes on in May to plan and win at Chancellorsville, which is considered one of his great military achievements. And then continues on to plan an invasion of Maryland and Pennsylvania. So clearly his health issue was weighing on him, but I don't think that it was affecting his thinking or his ability or interest in continuing to lead the army until after Gettysburg. Which suggests that it wasn't only the rigors of the campaign and his health, but I think it was the impact of the battle on him psychologically as well. And in Lee's own words, his health and worries about the confidence of his army were consuming him. And he says, I've been prompted by these reflections more than once since my return from Pennsylvania to propose to your excellency the propriety of selecting another commander for this army. Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, rejects Lee's offer. Even Davis is sort of demonstrating this reverence for Lee. So he writes, I'm truly sorry to know that you still feel the effects of the illness you suffered last spring and can readily understand the embarrassments you experience in using the eyes of others, having been so much accustomed to making your own reconnaissances. And then later he says, but suppose, my dear friend, that I were to admit with all the implication, the points which you present, where am I to find a new commander who is to possess the greater ability which you believe to be required? To ask me to substitute you by someone in my judgment more fit to command? Or would you possess more of the confidence of the army or of the reflecting men of the country is to demand an impossibility? 
basically, as Boss said, I can't possibly find someone who could be as effective in the place that you are at this time. Of course, it's important also to remember that Jefferson Davis didn't get along with almost any of his generals, with the exception of Braxton Bragg and Robert E. Lee. And we've talked about Jeff Davis before on this podcast. He was hard to get along with. He saw in a lot of generals their ambition to rise in either their level in the military or their status in some way. And I think that he saw in Lee someone who shared his value that their effort to create a new nation comes first. And also, I think that, you know, Lee managed Jefferson Davis well as a boss. No matter your age, no matter your health, Davis is saying duty and country come first. A private moment between two men. Would the lore of Lee have grown if Davis accepted the resignation? Because who would imagine that, right? I mean, it seems unbelievable that such a thing could happen. But, you know, it's true. The quote-unquote, you know, great Robert E. Lee. How could he possibly want to resign? But it reinforces the things that people who are shaping Confederate memory and Lee's memory wanted to say about Lee. Looking back today, this letter, widely circulated on nearly every historical timeline of the Civil War, now helps propel the myth of Robert E. Lee. I think the letter becomes well known because it supports this idea of Lee as selfless, Lee as humble, and that Lee would be willing to resign for the good of their cause. I think that it's not in any way important historically other than as an interesting footnote because it didn't change anything, right? But I think that the letter becomes more prominent as people are trying to build a memory and a story about Robert E. Lee as they make him what often he's referred to as the marble man. He's almost more myth than reality. And so I think that that's the importance of this letter is how the letter is used after the war as opposed to any influence it had during the war. Otherwise, it's just an interesting exchange between a guy and his boss. August 8th, 1863. In its time, a resignation letter from Lee was insignificant simply because the Confederate president brushed it aside. As years go by, sometimes the insignificant finds new meaning. In this case, glorifying a pillar of the lost cause to further endear him to the South. But what we can take from this letter today isn't about the mythical leader, Robert E. Lee. Instead, it's a rare glimpse into the feelings of the mere mortal, 
concerned about his age, his health, and perceptions of those around him, understanding thousands had just died at his command. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written by me, Rachel DePompa, and executive producer Colton Weekly. Thank you to Colton for all of your contributions this season. And to digital director Kate Albright, who was so far ahead in her touch-up editing, she even got to take a week-long vacation before this episode dropped. Unheard of! Thanks to our guest this week, Andy Talkoff, with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Next week, on episode six, the words brutal and callous don't even cover the half of it. Percy has the children thrown overboard, and while they're drowning, he instructs his men to shoot them. The day English settlers destroy a Native American town. There are a lot of different accounts like this in early Virginia history that I think have been glossed over over time. Plus, I remember seeing a a girl that was horribly hurt. She couldn't get up and two people were trying to pick her up. A deadly day in Charlottesville. None of us will soon forget. There was blood in the streets. It didn't, it didn't seem like Charlottesville. Remembering those who died in the skies and below during the notorious Unite the Right rally. That's next week on episode six. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. We have an Instagram account, How We Got Here, VA. Follow us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.